Psalm 102. Psalm 102, verse 1. Hear my prayer, Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I am in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call. Answer me quickly. For my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. My heart is blighted and without light, like grass, and withered like grass, and I forget to eat my food. In my distress I groan aloud, and am reduced to skin and bones. I am like a desert owl. Like an owl among the ruins, I lie awake. I have become like a bird alone on a roof. All day long, my enemies taunt me. Those who rail against me use my name as a curse. For I eat ashes as my food and mingle my drink with tears because of your great wrath. For you have taken me up and thrown me aside. My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favor to her. The appointed time has come, for her stones are dear to your servants. Her very dust moves them to pity. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory. For the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. He will respond to the prayers of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Let this be written for a future generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisons, prisoners and release those condemned to death. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. In the course of my life, he broke my strength. He cut short my days. So I said, do not take me away, my God. In the midst of my days, your ears go on through all generations. In the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. The children of your servants live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading. This is own, own most precious word for our hearts this morning. Let's bow our heads and hearts for prayer. And this morning we're going to be continuing our study of the attributes of God as laid out in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And we're going to be answering the question, what is God? The Catechism responds, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And as Robert Raymond explains in his Systematic Theology, the Catechism describes God as a spirit and then goes on to describe him using three adjectives, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. It then uses the preposition in to modify those three adjectives. So the seven nouns that follow, being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, are explained by those three adjectives, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In other words, God is infinite and eter eternal and unchangeable in his being, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his holiness, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice, 
infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his goodness, and infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his truth. So these attributes distinguish God entirely from his creation. He is all of those things, and we are none of those things. Only God possesses these attributes in an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable sense. And each of them can be attributed to each member of the Trinity fully and completely at all times, past, present, and forever. Again, as Raymond explains, God's glory is the sum total of all his attributes as well as any one of those attributes. So for the next several weeks, as we examine these attributes of God, we are going to see how God is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in each one. And in it, we're going to see God's glory. And it's my prayer that as we examine these things, that we will come away changed. It's my prayer that that we will come away as we behold the glory of God humbled, better equipped to be able to love God and to love others, better able to trust him no matter what circumstances we face in life, better able to worship him, better able to serve him, better able to proclaim the gospel. And all of these things are for his glory and for our good. The Hebrew word that we translate glory in Hebrew is kabod, which means weighty or heavy. To the Hebrew mind, a person's importance was was thought of in terms as his weightiness, his heaviness. And the Greek word that we translate glory is doxa, which comes from the root word meaning to think. And so it thus refers to what a person thinks about himself or about his reputation. And as we saw last week, God's glory is simply the inescapable weight of the intrinsic, the sheer intrinsic godness of God, inherent in his attributes essential to him as the deity. So the glory of God is the express sum of all of his attributes. And for us to glorify God means to help others to see the weightiness of God and the fame of his name by what we think, what we say, and what we do. We're told in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whatever we do, we are to do all to the glory of God. And that's what I want to help us to do better this morning, to help us to think big, biblically accurate thoughts of God, and so to help us to glorify Him. Now, last week we looked at God as being infinite and eternal, and this week we're going to talk about how He is unchangeable or immutable. God never changes. And as we'll see this morning, there's actually quite an overlap between God's infinity, infinity and eternality as well as His immutability. God is constant. He never, ever, ever changes. 
He cannot change for the better because he is perfect and always has been perfect. Nor can he change for the worse because that would result in him being something less than perfect. But we live in a world of change, don't we? Seasons come and go. The person that you look at in the mirror is not the same person that was there looking at you just a few years ago. When you don't see a friend's children for a few weeks, you can see how they have perceptibly grown in such a short period of time. Fashions come and go and then come back again. Moods fluctuate. People change their minds. Morals decay. Governments and nations come and go. Even the mountains that seem to us to be unchanging are constantly eroding. All of these things change. Everything changes. Everything that is except God. And the changeability we see around us points to the never-changing God. Charles Wesley says, All things as they change proclaim the Lord eternally the same. And this shows us our need to hold on to something fixed. In our heart of hearts, we long for something that is not going to change. God has wired us that way. God has made us frail. God has made us weak. God has made us age in order that we may seek to hold on to him, the eternal, unchanging, infinite God. The Bay of Fundy is, is famous for having 50-foot tides, tides that go up and down 50 feet twice a day. Now think of a boat that is, is, that is moored on the Bay of Fundy. You may have seen pictures of it, boats that were there floating then are sitting sideways in the mud when the tide goes out. Tides are caused by the, the movement of the moon around the earth and of the moon, or rather of the earth around the sun. You see there on the cover of your bulletin, James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So even the heavenly bodies change. Even the heavenly bodies, but God never changes. The observation that James makes is not just an amazing astronomical observation. Even the planets are not fixed. Last week we learned that our solar system is hurling through the universe at a rate of 134 miles per second, spinning as it goes. But even these massive objects, as they change, point to a God who never changes. God simply is. He is not changing. He is not growing. He is not evolving. The unchangeability or immutability of God, however, is under attack. It's not just under attack by, by those who are pantheists who believe that God is everything and that God somehow evolves as the universe evolves. Even those who claim to be evangelicals 
are making an attack on the immutability of God. Open theism and process theology are heretical positions that are actually gaining credence in Western evangelicalism. They deny God's exhaustive foreknowledge, teaching that it is limited so that he is able to respond to the actions and events of his creation. And unfortunately, this attitude creeps into our thinking as well. We think of God as being like us, of God as as changing his mind, or that we can somehow manipulate him through our acts of obedience. Or we sometimes think that God is going to run out of patience with us. But it's imperative that we have a right view of God. We need to meditate on the fact that God is immutable. And may we again be changed as we study the God who never changes. A correct understanding of this will give us hope in our trials. It will give us confidence in prayer. And again, it will help us to glorify God in thought, in word, and in deed. This morning, we're going to see how God never changes in his perfections, how God never changes in his purposes, and how God never changes in his promises. So first of all, God's perfections. God is perfect, past, present, and future. He cannot change for the better. He always is as he always was. He can never be more powerful. He can never be more holy. He can never be more righteous. He can never be more loving. He can never be more faithful. Nor can God ever be any less than he is. And this has been the view of Christianity throughout the centuries. In the 11th century, Anselm of Canterbury said that all that God is, he has always been. And all that he has been, he will ever be. Let me say it again. All that God is, he has always been. And all that he has been and is, he will ever be. Now we've spent a bit of time in Exodus 3.13. When Moses said to the Lord, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is is his name? What shall I say to them? God replied, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And this is where we get God's covenant name in Hebrew, Yahweh, or more accurately, YHWH. And this not only references God's eternality, that he has no beginning and no end, it also demonstrates that he never changes. He simply is. I am. As A.W. Tozer explains, for a moral being to change, it would be necessary that the change be in one of three directions. He must go from from better to worse or from worse to better, or granted that the moral quality remains stable, he must change within himself as from immature to mature or from one order of being to another. It would be clear that God can move in none of these directions. His perfections forever rule out any such possibility. You know, our ideas have consequences. 
and the concept of evolution has crept into our understanding of God. Because the, the evolutionist thinks that, that man is, is somehow changing from, from one thing into something completely different, that somehow God changes as well. But that can never be, because he is always perfect. God is self-sufficient and self-existent, and so he never needs to change. He has, no, he has no needs, and he never has had any needs. Again, according to Tozer, need is a creature word. Creatures have needs. Creators never have needs. The eternal trinity has existed for all eternity and will exist for all eternity as completely complete. As Jesus said in John 5.26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And when Paul addressed the men of Athens at the Areopagus in Acts 17, he said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God needs nothing. And his immutability is closely related to his eternality. God did not somehow suddenly come into existence. He has always been and will forever be exactly as he is. In the third century, Novatian said, God has no origin. Similarly, in the 13th century, Aquinas referred to God as the uncaused cause. Now, when the child asks the question, what is God? And is taught that God has no origin, the child will respond in wonder. A child will find this hard to explain. Tozer explains that he will find this hard to grasp since it introduces a category with which he is wholly unfamiliar and contradicts his bent towards origin-seeking so deeply ingrained in all intelligent beings, a bent that implies them to probe ever back toward undiscovered beginnings. Now again, thinking of the evolutionist, the evolutionist thinks that, that somehow a seed of life was, must have been somehow planted here by intelligent life. That's the only way for them to explain that, that life somehow synthesized. But then you need to ask the question, what goes back beyond that? What created that life, if that were indeed the case? And then what created the life before that, and before that, and before that? But God always exists, and that without change. Then we might ask, well, why did God create the universe? If God never changes and God has no needs, why would God create the universe? Of course, our, our finite minds can't even begin to grasp the infinite mind of God, but this we know. 
that according to God's infinite wisdom, the creation of the universe was the best of all possible plans. And he did not create it to fulfill some necessity in his being. The creation of the universe was simply the best way that the glory of God could be manifested. As God created mankind, knowing perfectly that man was going to fall and planning all along that he was going to send his sinless son, it's the perfect manifestation of his wisdom, of his power, of his holiness, of his justice and his righteousness, but also of his love, his goodness, his mercy, his grace, as well as his faithfulness. So God created the universe to fulfill his unchanging purposes. And that brings us to our second point. God is unchanging in his purposes. We read in Psalm 33:11 that the counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the plans of his heart to all generations. And in Proverbs 19:21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We constantly have to change our plans based on the, the, the changing events before us. But God's plans never require revision. They are the same yesterday and today and forever, just as God himself is the same yesterday and today and forever. So Isaiah responds in Isaiah 25.1, I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. But we have to be careful here not to say too much, because there are many passages in Scripture that seem to apply change to God. The Bible refers to him as seeming to change in his intention. But although God is completely separate and above his creation, he is not entirely divorced from his creation. He responds to his creation. As Raymond explains, God is not static in his immutability. He is dynamic in his immutability. But his dynamic immutability in no way affects the essential nature of God. So God responds in visible ways to his creation, to what his creation does, but he always does so according to his unchanging perfections. So yes, God always responds, but God always responds in a way that never changes according to his perfect plans, according to his perfect will. As Burkhoff explains, God is always in action. He enters into manifold relations with men and, as it were, with their, into their lives. There is change round about him, change in the relations of men to him, but there is no change in his being, his attributes, his purpose, his motives, his action, or his promises. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that God from all eternity did, by the, did the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, God is neither the author of sin, 
Or does he have any direct uh, responsibility for sin? Because his creatures are free to act according to their natures. Man is free, but only free so as to act according to his nature. Fallen man will always sin apart from the redeeming work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. And God will always respond to sin righteously. Righteously punishing it eternally in hell or perfectly in his son. There are at least 35 texts in the Bible that speak of God's divine repentance. But here we we move into the the realm that the open theists and the process theologians try to grapple with. When they, they believe that God actually changes his mind in response to the actions of men. But in denying God's immutability, they also deny God's omnipotence. According to open theist Clark Pinnock, open theism is a version of historic free will theism which posits God as granting to human beings significant freedom in order to cooperate with or resist the will of God for their lives. So in other words, God does his part in history and we do our part. Man is cooperating with God. My friends, this position is heretical and does not line up with the God of Scripture. Open theists and process theologians also deny God's omniscience. Process thought holds that God can't predetermine or foreknow foreknow with any certainty anything about the distant future. Open theists rather maintain that God can and does predetermine or foreknow whatever he wants to about the future, but that God is somehow limited. So in trying to to grapple with difficult things to understand, they create far greater difficulties and they promote heresy. But what then are we going to do with passages such as Genesis 6, verses 6 and 7? where we read that the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And the King James actually translates this, and it repented the Lord. But how then do we reconcile this with with passages like Numbers 23.19? God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? Or what about 1 Samuel 15.29? And the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For God is not a man that he should have regret. There has to be some explanation because Scripture can never contradict itself. The answer really is actually quite simple. A.W. Pink explains that when speaking of himself, God frequently accommodates his language to our limited capacities. 
He describes himself as clothed with bodily members, as eyes, ears, hands, etc. He speaks of himself, of himself as walking in Psalm 78:65, or as rising early in Jeremiah 7:13. Yet God never slumbers or sleeps. When God institutes a change in his dealings with men, he describes his course of conduct as repenting. When the Bible speaks of divine repentance, it is describing God's displeasure over sin and is using terms that we as mere humans will understand. So the Bible uses human feelings and human characteristics to describe God's personal reaction to the sin of his creatures. This is accommodative language. It's accommodating us in our weak understanding. According to Bruce Ware, just because God knows in advance that some event will occur, will occur, it does not preclude God from experiencing appropriate emotions and expressing appropriate reactions when it actually happens. This is not a change in his character, in his being, or his purpose, but a change in which he reacts to men. God is perfect and unchanging in his character, and he responds in ways that are predictable because he responds according to his perfect, unchanging nature. So when God responds to human behavior, it is always in a way that is in accordance with his divine nature. So in Jonah 3.10, when we read that, that God saw the repentance of the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. If God had wanted to destroy the Ninevites, he would have destroyed the Ninevites. But God wanted them to repent, so he sent a prophet to them to preach repentance and so that they could be saved. Now, a perfect example of this comes from the story of Saul. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. To 1 Samuel chapter 15. Just to give the context of the story that the Israelites wanted a king like the other nations. So they chose Saul, who was literally head and shoulders above the rest. They wanted somebody who was, was mighty in stature. And so they had rejected God by choosing the king that they wanted. Open theists look at verse 35 of 1 Samuel 15. It says that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel and form a whole doctrine around it. So again, in trying to answer one difficulty, they create far greater difficulties. They focus and exalt one attribute of God. They look specifically at God's love and so undermine his other attributes. But you have to look at all of God's attributes together. They form a network to, to, to somehow reduce one of them, also reduces the rest of them. According to the open theists, 
God's love for Saul was evidenced by his apparent plan to establish Saul's kingdom forever, thus allowing Saul to participate in the plan. They believe that God took a risk when choosing, when, when allowing Saul to become king, and that that risk didn't pay off. So they see David as God's contingent plan. And this not only denies God's immutability, but also his absolute sovereignty over all history and his divine foreknowledge. They gloss over 1 Samuel 15, 29, right there in that same passage, the verse that we saw a few minutes ago, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So in reality, it was God's intention all along to anoint David as king. Prophecy revealed this long before the birth of either David or Saul. Genesis 49.10 reads, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Saul was of the line of Benjamin. It is David who is of the line of Judah. And David's line was especially important because it is through the Davidic line that Jesus, the Messiah, would come. In Isaiah 11.10, we clearly see that Christ comes from the line of David, not Saul. In, the day of the root, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So it's unthinkable that the line of Jesus would come as a backup plan. Open theists have a wrong view of the love of God. So in exalting it above his other attributes, as I said a few minutes ago, they actually undermine the rest of God's attributes and so create something that is less than God. It would be utter foolishness for a father to give his infant son the steering wheel of a car while they hurl along Highway 97 at 100 kilometers an hour. And it would be no evidence of love. Likewise, God is not going to hand over the steering wheel to his fallen creation. God is in control. And thankfully, because God never changes, we can trust him. Because God shows his children his unchanging love, we can see that he is also faithful to his unchanging promises. Final point, God never changes in his promises. He is faithful to his promises, and his promises never change. For the mountains may depart, and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Likewise, we see in Micah chapter 6, Micah chapter 6, sorry, chapter 3, verse 6, says that I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. 
Because God does not change, Israel was not destroyed. Job 23.13, God is unchangeable and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. So Israel here forms the perfect case study of a God who is faithful to his unchanging promises. After the incident with the golden calf in Exodus 32, God said to Moses, Now therefore let me alone that in my wrath... So that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So God in reality was angry with Israel and he was well within his rights to destroy them utterly. He was well within his rights to start over again with Moses. But as a type prefiguring the coming Christ, Moses stood before God as Israel's mediator. He didn't destroy them because he was faithful to his promises, to the promise that he had made to Abraham in Genesis 12 too. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And when God ratified that promise with Moses in sorry with Abraham in Genesis 15:7 he cut a covenant he cut a covenant so so Abraham sacrificed animals and laid them out there with halves of animals on either side and then God put Moses into a deep sleep and then God himself passed through the middle of those animal carcasses, signifying what what would happen if that covenant was broken. But God there upheld both ends of the covenant. So God is faithful to his promises. Brothers and sisters, we are new covenant or new testament Christians, we understand this far better than anybody in ancient Israel could have understood. Because we are living on the other side of the cross. We now know God in a way even better than Abraham did. In Hebrews 6, verses 17 and 18, we read that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So the oath was given to remove all doubt from man. And this is not a conditional promise. There is no if clause in God's oath. In James 1, 17 and 18, that I read at the beginning, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What better gift 
is there than our salvation? There is no better gift than our salvation in Christ. And the gift and the calling of God are without repentance. Romans eleven twenty nine. What confidence does this give us? That God is not like we are fickle. God never changes. He is always faithful to his promises. But God's immutability appears in its most perfect beauty when viewed against the immutability of men. In God, no change is possible. In men, change is impossible to escape. Neither the man is fixed nor his word, but he and it are in constant flux. Each man appears for a little while to laugh and to weep, to work and to play, and then to go to make room for those who will follow him never ending cycle. A.W. Tozer. In Psalm 146, verses 3 to 6, we read, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that day, his plans perish. But blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps his plans forever. Israel trusted in Egypt to save them from the Persians, but Egypt was destroyed and Israel was taken into captivity. But we trust in a God who never changes, in a God whose promises never change. We trust in a God who isn't capricious. We trust in a God whose love is perfectly revealed to us in Christ, the perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So we can trust that God will be faithful to his promises because God is faithful in Christ. That he was satisfied with the price that Christ paid on our behalf. Because the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ is what paid our debt. And brothers and sisters, we have also been given his Holy Spirit as the seal, as the promise, as the guarantee of our inheritance. Christ has promised that he will come back. He is going to return. And just as God is faithful to us, to the promises that he has made to us in Christ, he is also going to be faithful to execute perfect justice. Divine, eternal wrath on those who have rejected Christ. So God is calling unbelievers to flee 
to flee from the wrath to come, to flee to Christ. Beloved, we can trust that God is faithful, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful that God has not left your salvation to you? Because if that were true, even for a heartbeat, you would run from him. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that if we are faithless, if, sorry, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So God's immutability ensures that he never ceases to be less than the perfect God who will always remain faithful to himself, his decrees, and his works. And that's where our confidence lies. That we can rest in God whose promises to us are sure. They are yes and amen. This gives us encouragement to prayer. Stephen Charnock said, What comfort would it be to pray to a God that, like a chameleon, changed color every moment? Who would put up a petition to an earthly prince that was so mutable as to gain, grant a petition on one day, then deny it on another? We pray to a God who never changes. But you may be asking then, if God never changes, why pray? Why pray? If God never changes, if his decrees never change, and his promises never change. We pray because God commands it. We pray because the same God who has ordained the ends has also ordained the means. God has ordained that his promises would never fail. God has ordained that he would always respond to the prayers of his saints. Those prayers that are prayed in his name, those prayers that are prayed according to his will, will always be answered. In, John 14, in John, 1 John 5, 14, we read, this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So let's go to him in prayer.